Hello, uh, welcome and uh, good evening to tonight's uh, public lecture with uh, Dambisa uh, Moyu. My name is Eric Neumeyer and I'm the head of the Geography and Environment Department, uh, which also sponsors um, tonight's talk. When uh, Penguin, the publisher of uh, Dambisa's book, contacted LSE, who then contacted us, whether we would be interested in um, hosting tonight's event, we, we uh, immediately said yes. You'll see later on why, but it's also, of course, the topic fits right into uh, our uh, department. Uh, I'll, I'll just mention very briefly, sort of uh, promoting uh, ourselves a little bit, that we also have a talk by Fred Pierce, as I mentioned uh, yeah. to you in the introduction, uh, called Land Crabbers on a quite similar uh, theme. So. Um, we are delighted um, to have both events here. Now, um, Dambisa does not need uh, much of introduction here at LSE in particular. She's been here several times already, uh, presenting some of her um, other work. Uh, to me, uh, personally, she's best known as the author of Dead Aid, Why Aid is Not Working and How There is a Better Way uh, for Africa. And this, I believe, is her third third uh, book. Uh, Damisa was born and raised in uh, Lusaka, Zambia. She has a PhD from Oxford University. Uh, I wish it had Sorry. been LSE. Uh, everyone has some weaknesses. Yes, what can I say? There you go. Uh, she also has an MPA, a Master in Public Administration from the uh, Kennedy School at, at Harvard. She's worked for the World Bank. Uh, she's worked for Goldman Sachs before. I think uh, it, it's probably uh, best to characterize her now as an author of really internationally best-selling books and a public intellectual. So we are very fortunate to have you here to talk about winner-take-all the race for the world's um, resources. Now, um, Damisa will speak for about 45 minutes. We will then have a question and answer session, so there will hopefully be quite a lot of time for, for this. And that's uh, good because I understand that Misa is quite a bit pressed uh, for time. Um, so after the event, she will sign uh, books, and her book uh, is outside. Uh, if you would like to purchase a, a copy, and you can get it, can get it signed. Uh, personally by the author, uh, but please understand that the interest of time, this will have to be sort of a speedy process. The questions you want to ask is during the lecture in the question and answer session, uh, not afterwards. We won't have the time for that. With these announcements and without any further ado, please join me in welcoming... Hello and good evening and thank you very much. I, I always say um, when people introduce me that it sounds like I'm attending my own funeral because you hear all these uh, nice complimentary things. So um, uh, keep it up. We really enjoy that. Um, we were just chatting in the green room that um, I actually love coming to Eversee and I hope you will not disappoint me this evening. I'm expecting lots of interesting questions during the Q&A period. But um, yes, we do have our weaknesses and I only went to Harvard and to Oxford, but that's by the by. I do love coming here and I'm glad to be here. Here again. 
Um, so what I'd like to do this evening is talk to you a little bit about my thesis. Um, and the thesis was really born out of ignorance. Um, I thought that I was pretty savvy, you know, reading the newspapers, kind of knew what was going on. And previously, as, I was just, as Eric just mentioned, I worked in the city, so I had a good idea of where oil prices were. Oh, today it's $100, tomorrow it's 95 okay, whatever. Um, and it was only um, later on, and about a couple of years ago, I realized how ignorant I really was. Um, and this was partly from experience of, of being on a number of boards of oil and gas companies and min of mining companies, and realizing that I had absolutely no clue what was going on. Um, every year, billions of dollars are spent um, to bring a bottle of water to a table, we don't even think about it. Um, issues around our mobile phones, we talk on our phones, we don't even think about how much effort and how many lives are lost every year um, from the people's exp exploration and development and the production of these resources to get them to us. So I was really stunned, um, and as I said, you know, lots of people dying, the amount of capital expenditure to do projects and then find that you actually don't get anything uh, out of it, so it's a complete crapshoot. Can I say crap in, in here? Yes. Uh, you can. <laughs> Complete crapshoot. Um, in any case, got me thinking, gosh, what exactly is going on? And why, why is it, because of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, why is such a big issue not on the global agenda? We talk about Copenhagen consensus on the environment. We talk about world trade with World Trade Organization. And we talk about banking regulation with the G20. But why is it the case that something so fundamental, food, water, energy, minerals, is something that we don't have a global discourse on. Um, at the same time, I started seeing lots of articles in the paper criticizing China. China is raping and pillaging, it's neocolonialism, they're abusing workers, using prisoners. And I thought, gosh, especially in the, in the context of what China was doing in my continent, Africa, it wasn't obvious, um, but I thought, this is interesting, let me go and do a bit of research. So I went out and I found some really interesting stuff, really, really inter oh, I think it's interesting, that should tell you how exciting my life is. Um, and I thought that it would be really important for me to sort of articulate what I think the Chinese are actually doing, um, but also talk to you a little bit about where I see the misinformation or inaccuracies are uh, pertaining to what China's actually doing. So this evening, what I'm planning to do is I'd like to start off by giving you a global snapshot of where the demand for resources is coming from, but also where the supply of resources is. And by supply, I mean of arable land, of water, of energy, and of minerals. And it's against that backdrop that China is acting very aggressively. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit about that. So I'll, I'll talk to you specifically about China's three-pronged approach to uh, approach, approach to uh, acquiring or the race campaign for resources. And then I will have to conclude. It's just, I wouldn't want to disappoint you. I've been labeled controversial. I wouldn't want to leave here without talking about some of the more controversial issues around China's race for resources and what it means for the world. So that's the plan. Um, save your questions. I'm very keen to hear what you have to say. But why don't we start off by talking about commodity demand. Where is it coming from? There are three key aspects of China's commodity demand, but also the demand across the world. We are seven billion people on the planet right now. The forecasters from demographers think, expect that we will be nine billion people by 2050. I think it's really important for us to understand that we are living in a very unique time of history. About 1960s, we had around three billion people. 
and the experience that we're feeling, feeling right now and experiencing right now in terms of the, the speed with which the numbers of people are increasing on the planet is very unique. It has never been seen in prehistory or history, and the demographers believe that after this pattern wears out, or we plateau out at 2100 at 10 billion people, it will never happen again. So we're living in a very, very unique place in time. So point number one, population growth. Population growth is critical. People want more and better things. They want, better, they want access to water. They want mobile phones. They want washing machines. And we'll keep coming back to this theme later. The second key aspect of demand is wealth. 90% of the world's population lives in the emerging markets. You'll be very familiar, I'm sure, many of you in here with the thesis of the BRICS, the idea that these economies are showing significant economic growth, um, and this is actually putting pressure um, or increasing people's wealth considerably. We expect that there will be an additional 3 billion people in the middle class by 2025, 3 billion new people into the middle class, a majority of them coming from the emerging markets. And again, all these people expecting to have better access to water, they want to move away from eating wheat and actually now consuming things like protein, which we'll talk about later, consume a lot of water, um, but also they want to drive cars, have televisions, fly planes, and so on. So we've got your population, we've got the increase in wealth, but there's a third aspect, which is urbanization. About two billion people live in urban areas right now. The expectation is that there will be an additional three billion people living in urban areas by 2020. So that additional will take us to five billion people. Remember, we're seven billion on the planet. So a large proportion of the world's population will be living in urban areas. Across much of the emerging world in particular, it's a very, very deliberate ploy by government and policymakers to move people into urban areas so that they can better deliver infrastructure, healthcare, and so on. So think about the draw in terms of building houses, building infrastructure, and building roads, and how that is putting a lot of pressure on, uh, on, on the world. Now, <coughs> demand is only one half of the story. Second half is supply. And I'd like to walk you through a very quick snapshot of supply of resources on the planet right now with land, water, energy, and minerals. Let's start with land. There are about 13 billion hectares of land on the planet. It's about 16 times the size of the, of the United States. And yet, only around 10% of land is arable. Africa has the most untilled arable land left on the planet. And China, with a population of 1.3 billion people, has about 10% arable land. So you can already start to see an emerging picture here, that you have a large population, a billion three, and by the way, we're only talking about China here. I've not talked about India and other places in the world. China, with a billion three population, 10% arable land, desperately needing to, f to feed its population, focusing very hard on trying to get access to uh, to land, so to, grow, to grow crops and to get food. Um, and we've got on the other side places like Africa where we have lots of untilled arable land. Um, and unsurprisingly, one aspect of China's race for resources is China moving into Africa to do, uh, uh, to do agriculture deals, and we'll come to that later. Um, I'll give you a few trading tips. Um, without, I hope I don't get fired or thrown in jail or something for giving tips. Um, but one of the key commodities, food commodities, that is incredibly scarce in China is soybeans. 
Um, Brazil and the United States are the leading uh, global producers of soybeans. And I talk in the book about significant consequences of there being a move in the U.S. and Brazil of growing more and more soybeans, um, but also biofuels, which we'll talk about later, um, in lieu of producing other crops just so that they can satiate China's demand. So land, big deal, very, very important. Um, again, it's a big driver in terms of being able to feed the Chinese population. Next, we have water. 70% of the earth is water. However, less than 1% of that is actually accessible to us in terms of being able to use it for drinking or even for sanitation. We cannot even use it to, to flush our loose. Less than 1%. Now, what's, what's wrong with the rest of the, the, um, the water that's available? Most of it, it, most of it is too salty. Desalination is a big problem. Uh, China, because it has a per capita water access less than the world average, and there's some beautiful charts in my book, I encourage you to get it. Um, but because China does not, is below, significantly below the world average, she's doing some incredibly aggressive things. Everything from, I'm sure you've heard about this, blowing up clouds in the sky to create rain. She did this a lot in the, in the uh, um, in, in the lead-up to the Beijing, uh, Beijing Olympics. But also, she's rerouting whole rivers. The Brahmaputra River uh, has caused a lot of skirmishes with, uh, with India. So this is a very serious thing. Uh, the United States National Intelligence Council, just this year in February, put out a report. I urge you to read it, um, talking about how there will be significantly more water wars in the world in the decades to come. Um, water already is being used as a tool for, um, for terrorism, and many places where there are shared basins of water, um, the issues are, are putting a lot of pressure in terms of people's ability to, um, to live together and obviously causing a lot of conflict. Um, one of my favorite data points, which I cite in the book, is uh, there's a database which dates back a thousand years, and it has a full uh, record, well, I don't know if it's full, but a pretty good record of, uh, of uh, water wars that have gone on in the past. And, you know, if you're sitting around, um, don't have a hot date, you should probably have a look at this water database. Um, so, land, water, energy. I was shocked about energy. Uh, we today, at this moment, are living off of discoveries that were made back in the 1950s. With all the technology, with all the information that we have, I really was shocked at how little progress has me been made since the 1950s to actually find new, uh, new sources of oil, fossil fuels, and so on. There's lots of discussion in the press. Uh, every now and then you hear a great story with a headline that says, Oh, new oil discovery. Well, what I found was actually these are not new oil discoveries. We, we are now being able to access some of these reservoirs, um, and one of my favorite ones is in Brazil. Uh, any Brazilians in here? Yeah. Yes, there's a Brazilian there. I love your country. It's great. I'll be there for 2014 for the soccer. Don't worry. Um, Brazil, they, about a, two years ago, they had a massive announcement. Um, they claimed that they had discovered about 123 billion barrels of oil in offshore Tupi. Am I pronouncing it right? Tupi? T-U-P-I? Yeah. Okay. And the markets, commodity markets, oil markets, responded. They obviously went down because people thought there'd be massive supply. What uh, the, the government neglected to mention at the time, but subsequently came out, was that that oil reservoir is beneath two miles of salt. 
and it would cost over 500 billion, with a B, 500 billion dollars for us to even think about accessing it. But worse than that, the technology that exists today does not give us the opportunity to go and access it anyway. So when the next time you open the paper and somebody tells you there's a new oil discovery, spare a thought, that is absolutely not the case. Uh, the IMF, just last month in May, put out a report claiming that they think, uh, forecasting that they think that oil prices will go to about $200 a barrel. Um, the Energy, Informa uh, Energy uh, Information uh, Administration have also put out forecasts closer to $200 a barrel for, for energy um, by the close of this, this decade. Significant pressure on energy. Later on, we can talk about shale gas and whether it's causing, you know, pro providing a reprieve. Um, I'm, I'm sure you're not going to be surprised when I say it's not providing a reprieve, but we'll talk about that a little bit later. Fourth category, minerals. Um, the amount of waste, think about how many mobile phones. I'm sure even in this room there are numerous mobile phones, but the number of mobile phones we discard or lose every year. Um, there's a fantastic survey, again, I've, I've put this in the book, um, of how the, the fact that the number of mobile phones in one year in the United States that were lost or retired was equivalent, the amount of copper in these mobile phones was equivalent to 50 747 jumbo jet planes. Enormous amounts of copper. The problem is China consumes about 40% of the world's copper today. And it's becoming much more difficult to access these uh, copper places, both in terms of terrain, which is much more tough to get to. Um, we know about the Chilean mine not too long ago. But also, it's much more, much more uh, politically vulnerable places where you have to go to find uh, this copper resource. Um, we hear so much in terms of minerals. We know about the Argentinian uh, recent uh, expropriation of some of the YPF assets. But it's not just the domain of the emerging markets. Even in Australia this year, in March, the Australian government uh, raised taxes on mining companies um, to 30% for iron and coal. So there's significant political pressure to expropriate a lot of these assets, but even then, um, significantly difficult to try and gain access to, um, to minerals. So if I haven't sufficiently depressed you, I'd like to spend a bit of time talking about what China's strategy um, is specifically. What is China doing? And particularly, what is China doing that the rest of us are not? And there are basically three key aspects of China's race for resources. The first part is what I call symbiosis, or this idea of China pursuing relationships with the axis of the unloved. These are regions across the world that have basically been ignored um, and basically have been um, bereft of investment particularly from Western, Western economies. And it's not just Africa. I know people talk about Africa a lot, but it's places across South America, Chile, Brazil, um, places across uh, Eastern Europe, Russia, um, Kazakhstan, and even more developed economies, they are campaigning to do stuff in places like Canada. Um, I was surprised to know that Australia is the largest recipient of foreign direct investment from China. Um, you wouldn't believe that if you read some of the headlines that you see in the newspapers. So symbiosis, the fact that China is investing in these regions, um, she's providing job creation, trade, investment, in return gains access, to, um, gains access to these resources. This is a key piece of the puzzle, not only because it's a multilateral approach, which is quite friendly, but also because remember that many of these emerging economies have 60, 70% of the population under the age of 24. 
Africa, 60% of the population under the age of 24. In places like Uganda, any Ugandans here? Yes, no? Oh, there we go, in Ugandan. Um, Uganda, 50% of the population under the age of 15. Very, very young populations, they need jobs. The Arab Spring that we've just seen, don't believe when people say it's all about politics. I really believe that a lot of it is about disaffection and people wanting to see improvements in their lives. It hasn't come, and all of a sudden you have the Chinese coming in, offering opportunities to build roads to, and by the way, this is not to say that the Chinese are doing this out of good-heartedness. Um, they are interested in, in, in the economic uh, aspects of this trade, but it's, you can see why countries are desperately uh, very keen and desperately keen to have the Chinese come in. Particularly, uh, we don't want to get into the whole aid debate, but um, particularly given that the traditional aid donors, Britain, America, across Europe, are suffering from the financial crisis that uh, they are going through, through right now. So symbiosis, big part of the puzzle. Second part of this three-pronged approach is what I call in the book zero cost of capital. Um, this is the whole approach of China into the emerging world and across the world in general is buttressed by state capitalism. The idea that the Chinese government is absolutely involved, it's providing capital to their companies, uh, her companies, to go out and abroad in a very, very deliberate, both vertically and, and horizontally integrated. They basically contact the, the guy who builds roads so that he can work with the guy who builds mines, so he can work with the guy who ships, who knows how to ship um, minerals out. There's a chain of links that is orchestrated by the Chinese government in a very systematic way that runs smoothly. The interesting thing about this idea of zero cost of capital is very often I speak to people who work in Western institutions pricing a barrel of oil or copper, and they will snicker and say, these Chinese don't know how to price resources. Um, they'll say they're overpaying for resources. So they'll go to a mine and they'll say, this mine, we've done our due diligence. We think this mine should be worth $100 million. And then they turn up and they see that the Chinese are going to pay, I don't know, let's say $500 million. And they don't understand why are the Chinese paying so much. They don't know how to do their maths. They don't know discounted cash flows. And what I'm arguing in the book is that that is our own narrow uh, understanding of how to value an asset. We think that a, va a value of an asset um, is simply what the return on that asset is going to be. The Chinese have a broader utility function. For them, at virtually any cost, and virtually all costs, um, they will gain access to that resource so that they can support the, the agenda at home, which is to increase economic growth and to meaningfully put a dent in poverty. Remember, 1.3 billion people, 300 people that live like us, Western standards of living, and a billion people, one billion people um, who are living in desperate poverty. I might say here, and I hope there are not too many Zambians in the room, don't throw stones at me, but just to put it in context, the Zambian population is about 13 million people, and we have failed, failed to increase economic growth and put a dent in poverty in a meaningful way. So you try and do that for a billion people, and then we can have a proper chat. Very difficult. It's a political imperative for the Chinese government. If they want to stay in power, they have got to deliver economic growth and reduce poverty at any cost. And this is why any time you hear somebody saying, oh, they always overpay for resources, it is a lack of understanding of the nuance um, around what China's political class agenda uh, actually is and how they need to execute it. The third aspect of China's uh, 
uh, approach has been, been that China's become what we call a monopsonist. Uh, in economics, a monopsonist is a price, price setter, but based on them being the key buyer of a resource or of, of, a, of a product. Uh, let me give you a couple of examples. Uh, let's suppose you lived in uh, Iowa, which is the heartland of America. Americans in here? Oh, yeah, lots of Americans. So you know Iowa. Um, Iowa got lots of corn fed, um, doing lots of farming. Um, but let's suppose you grow tomatoes in Iowa and you have one big Walmart, let's say, a big supermarket. All these farmers, thousands of farmers, can only sell or can mainly sell to Walmart. Well, because Walmart has such a big presence as the single buyer in this area, they are able to buy at the price that they set. If they say to you, yes, Mr. Farmer, we're going to buy your tomatoes, but we're only willing to pay you 50 cents for a tomato, well, then the farmers either have to collude and go against them, which rarely happens, or they have to decide that they have to sell at that price. Um, another example of a monopsonist is governments. Um, by and large, governments are the only purchasers or buyers of military artillery, so armaments. I mean, I said by and large. We don't have to discuss the other people who buy them as well. But by and large, governments are the buyers of arms, of military equipment, and therefore they too, um, to some degree, are monopsonists. Well, China has already become a monopsonist in many ways um, for commodities such as copper and such as coal. Today, they are the go-to buyer of these resources. And most importantly, if you go to these perfectly competitive markets, we know that whatever happens in China actually influences the prices um, on the London Metal Exchange and, and across other commodity exchanges around the world. So what is happening with all, this, all these moving parts? And I think there are two things I'd like to stress. First of all, we have seen commodity prices just in the aftermath of the financial crisis. So since 2009, we've seen commodity prices increase by 150%. Significant spike. This is in the aftermath of the financial crisis. The other thing is, as we sit here today, there have been approximately 25 wars that have their origins in commodities that are raging around the world. Very often, because we're sitting here, we don't even really think about it. But around the world, aside from the wars that um, are being forecasted by the, the US government that I talked about earlier, we're sitting here today in a world where there is wars going on because of the scarcity of, of resources. I would like to spend a couple of minutes, and I have to make sure, I don't see a clock around here. Uh, I, I'm sure, I'm sure, it, oh, there it is, right in front of me. Um, but anyway, uh, let me spend a bit of time giving you some specific examples, if you don't mind, of some deals that China has done uh, against this backdrop. A few years ago, China bought a mountain, Mount Toromocho in Peru. It's half the height of Mount Everest and has about 2 billion tons of copper. They spent about $3 billion doing this. Um, those of you who are mathematically and trading inclined, if you think about the fact that uh, copper is trading around 6,000 a ton right now, we're talking about an $18 trillion asset. Um, one example. Number two, um, China is already the, the leading investor and leading trading partner of Brazil. Uh, she has engaged in beef swaps and chicken swaps with Brazil. 
She's investing capital, China's investing capital in Brazil. In return, she gets access to a stream of beef and chicken um, for a certain period of time. Uh, similarly, we have seen a oil swaps, um, oil swaps in Russia. We've seen uranium swaps in Kazakhstan to fuel the idea of uh, nuclear energy for China. Again, China invests, she gives loans, she provides um, infrastructure, and in return, she gets 25-year, 50-year access to streams of oil production and so on. In Africa, one of my favorite stories, um, China has built a road from Cape to Cairo, from the southernmost point of Africa to the northernmost point of Africa. It will take you about five weeks to drive it. You drive through 15 countries, it's fully tarred. It's three times the distance of New York to California, 9,000 miles of fully tarred road. Um, a couple of other examples. I talked about India and the Brahmaputra River. They're rerouting re a whole river so they can gain access to water. And one of my personal favorites, because I'm giving you only examples so far from the emerging world, is just a few months ago, they struck a laptop for pork deal in Canada. Very controversial. I'm sure there are Canadians in here somewhere. Um, yes, I'm sure you know about this. And uh, it was the Chinese who were giving laptops to Canada in return for getting access to um, uh, pork. So very, very broad approach. I will just close this section by saying the brilliance of this symbiotic approach is that you kind of are locked in. Um, where have we seen this approach before? We've seen it with the way China is engaged with the United States. China lent money to the United States government. Remember, China is the largest foreign lender to the United States government. And in return, the United States government gave China access to its most important resource, which is its consumer. So you have this thing where even if you really hate them, you can't cut off your nose to spite your face. You're locked in. Um, and I think this is something that uh, I explore quite extensively in, in the book. <clears throat> OK. so. Let me spend a few minutes talking to you about some of the issues, the big stuff that you hear, the headlines, the scary headlines about uh, neocolonialism, use of prisoners, labor ratios, all this kind of stuff. And I want to start off a little bit by talking about uh, neocolonialism. And by doing that, I'm going to read a small section from my book, just a couple of sentences. Um, OK, so in June 2011, during the African Growth and Opportunity Act meetings in Africa. Does anybody, do people know what that is, Africa Growth Opportunities Act? Okay, so basically this is uh, America's sort of consolation prize to Africa because they won't open their markets to let African countries sell produce, so agriculture produce into the US. They've basically got a few deals with a number of countries in Africa where certain goods from Africa can be sold into the US. So this was the annual conference last year, June, uh, it happened to be in my country, but I didn't say that because I thought I might taint it. I did say it was in Africa. Um, and I'm sure to most people it's all a blur anyway, so it doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> in June 2011, during the African Growth and Opportunity Act meeting in Africa, U.S. Secretary of State Hillary Clinton cautioned that Africa must be aware of new colonialism. And she reminded the audience we saw that during colonial times, it's easy to come in, take out natural resources, pay off leaders, and leave. Although China was never explicitly mentioned, her comments were quickly interpreted 
as a thinly veiled attack aimed at China. Now, this is a classic example of the kind of things that irritate me. This is, you're talking to an African audience. Do you really think that we're dumb and we didn't realize that you were talking about the Chinese? Anyway, needless to say, there was a lot in the press, not just in Zambia, but across many other African countries. The Chinese were livid. They issued a report and a statement. But it got me thinking, is the Chinese camp campaign for resources around the world a neocolonialism approach? And I argue in the book that it's absolutely not. The Chinese have absolutely no interest whatsoever in the political uh, uh, aspects of these countries. In fact, if anything, they are criticized for the fact that they don't like or don't want to get engaged or care enough about politics. They have no agenda to export democracy. I think we know that. Um, <laughs> they have no agenda whatsoever in terms of uh, religion or any of that. We know that the Chinese agenda is very narrow. It's very clear. They are there for business. So first and foremost, the notion that neocolonialism is on the Chinese agenda, it may be um, when I'm long and gone, but I can tell you for now, absolutely no interest. A billion three people at home, if they cannot deliver economic growth and put a dent in poverty and continue to improve uh, the lives of the, of the hundred, uh, excuse me, the billion people that are living dire lives, they will have a problem at home, a political problem at home. There's absolutely zero value. And by the way, the Chinese are incredibly smart, um, zero value in trying to have a sort of a, pol a political campaign to colonize. The second point that I often hear is that the Africans don't like the Chinese. They're being abused. They're being taken advantage of. So um, in the book, I cite the Pew survey. There's an institute in the US called the Pew Research Institute. They went to 10 countries in Africa. And call me crazy, they asked the Africans, what do you think about the Chinese? Do you like them? Do you hate them? Are they good? Are they improving your lives? And what do you think about the Chinese compared to the Americans? <laughs> By wide margins, 98%, 97%, they went in and they found that the Africans said, we love the Chinese. They are improving our lives. We've got infrastructure. And by the way, we prefer them to the Americans. <laughs> I'm not saying here that the Chinese are perfect and they should get a red carpet, welcome. There are skirmishes, there are issues, even in my own country there were issues around the Chinese investment and some of the concerns there. But this goes back to this fantastic book called Dead Aid, um, which came out a few years ago. You must get it if you haven't got it yet. But it goes back to what is the role of the government. The government has the responsibility to ensure that investors, whether it's the Chinese, the Americans, the British, whoever it may be, coming into a country has to satisfy certain criteria and has to be um, willing to perform to the highest standards. The Chinese invest in Britain. We never hear any concerns about the Chinese investing here. They invest in America, they invest across Europe, but immediately invest in Africa, hands are up in the air. Why? Because people are worried about the performance of the government. We should be worried about performance of the government, but we have to also remember that the weaknesses of African governments are a direct artifact of an aid system that has basically allowed them to abdicate their responsibilities and to do nothing uh, at home in terms of being held accountable. So, are the Chinese loved in Africa and around the world? Broadly, the answer is yes. 
uh, in the book I talk about this being quite an evolutionary relationship. Um, I actually think that if you go to some places in Africa, um, maybe they're not as loved as much as they were previously, but I do think that the relationship evolves from one of we really love them, they're investing and putting money, money in, to one of we really hate them. Uh, I couldn't believe I was in the United States in uh, 2010 into the, into the midterms, and I'm sure the Americans in the room who were there will know what I'm talking about. Vicious attacks against the Chinese, they're currency manipulators, they're stealing our jobs, all that kind of rhetoric. And so I have a theory that actually as countries become richer, as their per capita incomes increase, you see much more of a backlash uh, against the Chinese. But that's something that I think they will have to uh, deal with. Prisoners, another popular old wives' tale. Oh, they're using prisoners. Now, my view is on this is like, okay, if they really were using prisoners, where are the photographs of this? We live in a mobile phone world with cameras. Why do we not see photographs of this? Um, the Economist had a very interesting take on it. They actually think that the Chinese um, very uh, inappropriately have their workers in uniforms that happen to be stripes. And so Africans look around and say, oh my god, those guys uh, must be prisoners. But actually, there's really no evidence of this. And I think uh, if there is evidence of, uh, of any labor abuses, environmental concerns, uh, which, by the way, I stress again, because I know somebody's going to misinterpret me, if they are these things, and I'm sure they are, because we see it even with Western investment in these regions, I believe it is not in a systematic and widespread based, a widespread way um, as it is often portrayed in the press. Um, let me conclude with one more example, labor ratios. The other thing I hear, oh, the Chinese bring in their workers, they don't hire locals. Um, it's a big issue in Turkey as well, uh, as, as well as uh, South America, um, but also in Africa. So what I did was to go, and in the book there's a table that lists 15 projects across Africa, different countries, uh, I used official statistics, and official, I'm sure your eyebrows are already raising, yeah, official, um, but I've taken data from uh, the New York Times, Reuters, I mean, uh, Human Rights Watch, and it is absolutely not the case, at least for this sample of projects, that the, there are more Chinese workers than there are African workers. Um, almost consistently, more African workers than there are Chinese, and again, something that gets lots of, he <coughs> gets lots of headlines in the Western press, um, but I think, again, is largely unfounded. Um, I'm running out of time, so we can't really talk about where, what's happening now with uh, uh, commodity prices. They've come down quite a bit recently. What, what, what does that mean for the super cycle? Is it over? Is it not? What sort of policies should we be thinking about? Should we have a much more co con uh, sort of uh, coordinated and co cohesive approach to dealing with the commodity issue, which is what I think we should do? But let me end off by just saying one last thing, which is it's really, really important that the whole world rally around this issue. The other stuff is important, don't get me wrong, but it's largely irrelevant if we've starved ourselves to death and we're killing each other because commodity prices are at 200% um, higher than they are today. I strongly believe we need to have a much more multilateral approach, much more uh, engaged approach to commodity issues and move away from this really unilateral, more military-based um, approach to commodity scarcity. The book is full, at the end, the last chapter, is full of specific things we can do around water, around energy, around uh, um, minerals and, and food production. Um, but it also ends up with one point, which I will leave on, which is that the United States spends over $700 billion a year 
uh, fighting wars around the world. It's much larger than even the second most uh, investor in military spending. Um, it's probably much higher. The number I just gave you is a 10, 2010 number. It's probably closer to a trillion dollars uh, in the U.S. spending in military. I strongly believe that if they use even a fraction of that amount of money and earmarked it for innovation, for R&D, desalination, I believe that America, which is still the largest uh, innovator, the best innovator in, uh, in a lot of spheres, in technology and so on, they could crack a lot of these issues. And by the way, we'd be living in a much more peaceful world because many of the wars that we're facing are actually uh, an outgrowth of commodity scarcity. Thank you very much for your time, and I look forward to your questions. Uh, thank you very much, Dambisa, for a um, very interesting and uh, at, at times very humorous uh, talk it's, as well. It's, I was it's interesting British for that was really rubbish. That, that was, no, 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 no. It's the British understatement for it was really, really good. I was rather hoping you would continue with your asking whether uh, you know, students from X country and Y country so that we could further show off the clue yeah, global I'm nature <laughs> of our student uh, bodyship, but uh, I think we showed that yes, no, already. Definitely. So we will have now plenty of time for questions and answers. A question is a question. It's not a mini lecture. Uh, and I would uh, very much hope you keep it uh, uh, brief and crisp. Um, there are mics. Uh, please uh, wait until, if I, um, 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 if I select you for asking a question, please wait until the mic is there. Please also, the event is recorded, and we hope to make that available. Is please. it? it you is told recorded. me this now? I am sorry. I have to redo my speech. Yeah. <laughs> I will give you the video later on. Uh, so please state your name and, and where you are from. So can I see, please, uh, signs for... Uh, questions. I will I take first from here and then I will go to the upper gallery. Okay, we'll have one over there and one here and we'll go straight up there, the lady in the, in the front. We'll group them in two or three and then yeah. you can answer them. So first here, there, third. Sanyuk Tamursi for Mark News International here at Danby Sorry. Sorry. Oh, there you are. Yeah. There you Hi. are. Hi. Um, two questions. You can pick one if you'd like, or you can answer both if you'd really like. Uh, one is, without being too paranoid or without fueling a certain agenda, um, China's acquisition of Kazakh uranium, for example, and Russian oil, what is that doing to certain Western perceptions of Chinese, you know, their economic prowess? Like what's, and, and therefore, as a result, what does that do to... Chinese investments in, for example, Africa. How does America's perception of China's expansion fuel their thing in, in Africa? And also to go back to this fantastic book, Dead Aid, uh, there's another one that's just come out, Poor Economics. And so how do you think that this, as well as what Abhijit has mentioned in Poor Economics, has, um, has changed the perception of the global aid debate? And how do you see that going forward? But that's a much broader question. But uh, you, can, you can pick one if you'd like. Um, well, I guess with the context, the speech title is winner take all, so uh, it's about commodities. So I will lean my answer towards the, your first question. But very quickly, uh, I would love to say that uh, Dead Aid was so influential and actually really transformed the whole discussion on development. 
Well, um, you know, I think I'm a bit more realistic about it. I think that it's just the reality of the economic situation. I think that the donors have simply not got the money to continue to fund these programs. Um, you know, I think, that I hope that they did take away some of the stuff that I talked about in Dead Aid because I did believe uh, everything I said, and I still believe it, that it undermines uh, democracy and, and does cause wars and so on. But, um, but I, I do hope that it's. I, I do think it's actually much more and sort of an extension or an artifact of, of the economic conditions. Um, your question about what what do the Chinese think about the U.S. perception about what they are doing? Um, frankly, I, I don't think they really, my dear. I don't think they give a damn. <laughs> I think the only thing they really care about is the political imperative at home. Um, which is the right thing. If you are a sitting policymaker, you really ought to be, you ought to care about what your people think. And again, linking back to dead aid, this is one of the big problems with the aid system. You are allowing governments not to care about what your domestic constituents want. Um, but I, I think the Chinese are very narrowly focused and very narrowly driven um, by the political imperative at home. They, you know, what, of what consequence is it? Um, to uh, you know, to them, if people are saying things that are, are simply not true, of course it hurts. But I think that they try very hard to address those concerns. Um, I'm not being paid by them, by the way, so don't think that they're. <laughs> but <clears throat> I do think they try to get a different version out, and I think that uh, I think they're doing quite well at that. You know, I think that we need to be given a chance. Okay. So then, Bisa, I gather we are not collecting questions. Oh yes, we are. I'm sorry, I butted groups. in. I um, sorry. Either way, we can uh, no, do either way, whichever you prefer. Okay. No, that's fine. Okay, we'll take the next two then uh, together, please. Okay. Yes, please. Hi, Rob Summers. People uh, in financial markets, buy side, sell side, they're very well aware of um, you know, the growth of the middle class and emerging markets, etc. It's a very common theme. Uh, I'd love your thoughts on this um, you know, decline of commodity prices, uh, metals, energy, etc., and uh, you know, talk at the end of the super cycle in commodities. Okay, and we'll have one question up there. Yes, please. Thank you. Hi, Dambisa. Thanks for your lecture. My name is Amanda. Oh, there I'm you up are. here. Hi. Uh, policy director of VSO. Um, I've just come from Rio where uh, there was uh, a failure to agree on uh, the outcome document. The issues were land, water, and energy. The G77 and China on the one hand, the EU and the US on the other hand. What do you think is happening? What, what is the, the, the underlying uh, issue that made us fail to reach a consensus on what we need to get in terms of sustainable development? Should I take those two? So, um, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, is it the end of the commodity cycle? Is that a good way of encapsulating it? Um, so my answer is no. Uh, it's not the end of the commodity cycle, and I'd like to very briefly, I'll just give you three reasons why I do not believe that's the case. First point is really this convergence argument, which I've already touched on. China, billion three people, 300 million that live like us, they're converging to higher levels of uh, uh, per capita income, and all with that, what that brings. Um, but I think it's really important to put this in context. Um, China, for its per capita today, is consuming about 10,000, excuse me, uh, the United States is 10 times the amount of capital stock that China has got today. So by that, in simple English, um, there's much more capital stock in the United States, which is a smaller population and albeit a higher per capita income. So you've got China with a larger population, a lower per capita income, which is trying to converge to a higher per capita income. You've got that 10 times increase that is possible um, through energy and uh, the oil and, uh, excuse me, and uh, uh, in infrastructure and minerals and so on. 
Um, but the other thing that I think is quite important is the intensity of use. If you look across different commodities, whether it's copper, aluminum, uh, gold, and so on, we found that the decline in the intensity of use, and by that I mean the amount of copper, for example, that is necessary to produce one unit of output, we would hope that with technology and innovation you would need less copper to produce the same output. We are finding actually for most commodities it's either flattened out already or it's actually increasing. We're needing more resources to produce the same units of output. So that is, and that again is very much a, an artifact of, of the emerging markets, but obviously led by China. Then the third point is a point of, um, in, which is called reservation price and demand destruction. So in the Western countries, the more developed economies, if oil gets to $100 a barrel, or let's say $4 a gallon, which seems to be the magic number in the US, $4 a gallon of gas, Americans stop driving their cars, they start you know, using public transportation, they stop um, keeping their air conditioning on, and so on. You can see that as income, um, incomes are declining and you're seeing higher unemployment in these countries, you are seeing demand destruction. So that price, instead of being at $100, is coming down to $90, $95 a barrel. But in contrast, in countries across the emerging world where we're seeing increases in wealth, we're actually seeing the reservation price or the tolerance price, we can call it, going up and creeping much higher. So I strongly believe that these economic consequences, convergence, the intensity of use, and demand destruction, reservation price, are actually providing a higher um, uh, sort of uh, base or floor to, um, to commodity prices. And I think what we will see, um, I don't think we'll ever see $50 uh, again uh, for oil. Um, as many of you know, for about 20 years we saw $20 a barrel of oil. I think that's now passed with this genie out of the bottle for economic growth. I think we will see a lot of volatility as we start to get all this euphoria. We've got new discoveries, as I discussed earlier, issues around uh, shale and so on. But I think what you'll see is it will be, it will be um, higher highs, so we'll get maybe to $200 a barrel, and higher lows. So instead of getting to $50, we'll get to $75 per, at, at every swing. So hopefully that answers, uh, answers your question. Um, <clears throat> gosh, Rio. 40,000 delegates attended, 10,000 government officials. I think that says it all. I just, I, I read this and I thought, oh my goodness, I cannot even imagine um, just the, I mean, they should do this in Greece. They could get that bail out of the economic problems. I mean, I think it kind of exp <laughs> explains First of all, these problems and the challenges with coordination issues. But really, to your more, more seriously to your question about what, um, what is going on, and again, I, I do talk a lot about this in the book, I think one of the big problems is that there is no unified view about what constitutes a commodity crisis. In Europe and in America, the notion that you would turn, up and turn on a tap of water and no water would come out or dirty water would come out, it's just unfathomable. But anyone in this room who's from Africa, South America, uh, India, will know exactly what I'm talking about when I talk about water rationing and I talk about um, the quality of water being relatively poor even in an urban, uh, urban household. So you can see that the political motivation or the sort of political discourse um, in the emerging markets is very much about water use, water access, and so on. Um, and probably energy would be second to that. But in the West, who talks about water scarcity? 
all they focus on is, is energy. And I think that creates this sort of schism between the agenda. The, um, you know, the Europeans and Americans are very focused on energy. Well, that's an important thing, but it's not going to break the bank in terms of livelihoods um, and whereas water would in, in these different places. Um, the last point I'd just make is that we are witnessing a change in the world. Um, we really are, a very, very fundamental change. And I spend a lot of time sort of fascinated by this whole question about what the world might look like as we continue to evolve. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Last week, um, the Chinese gave $40 billion to Europe. The Brazilians, Indians, and Russians each gave $10 billion to Europe as a bailout. I mean, I, believe me, I was glad I was alive to see this happen. <laughs> The Americans gave zero. The Canadians gave zero. So we now are seeing, um, if I may use the cliche my mother loves, the horse becoming the rider. Um, and in that sense, I think that many of the issues that we've talked about here, in particular water, may actually seep to the top of the agenda. And I'm not surprised that you saw this sort of split in the, in the discourse at Rio. Okay, we'll take a few more questions. The gentleman all the way in the back. Um, I was quite surprised to hear you extol the virtues. Where are you, sorry? Oh, sorry, I'm oh, Adam, Adam Dayan from King's College School. Um, I was quite surprised to hear you extol the virtues of, of kind of Chinese state capitalism and the government guiding, guiding and coordinating. I was really fascinated by the use of that word. Um, all these different um, Chinese industries to kind of uh, to, to best uh, take advantage of African resources. Um, because I think it's quite soundly refuted by a paper published by an LSE professor quite a few years ago now, The Uses of Knowledge in Society by um, Friedrich Hayek. Uh, where he suggests that, that really government, because knowledge is so farly, so, so uh, diversely distributed, can never really um, successfully guide the hand of companies in that kind of way to successfully, um, to su successfully exploit these kind of resources. And perhaps it's this state capitalism that's, that's led to the colossal property, property boom uh, on the, uh, the coast of China that's going to cause a massive issue. But more fundamentally to your thesis about kind of the resources being, um, being really scarce now, I don't think this is very new. It was, it was said by Malthus hundreds of years ago. It was reiterated by, by Paul Ehrlich um, in the 70s. Um, okay. And What's the question? Uh, well, basically, um, won't, won't, the, won't, won't, the market, um, won't the market incentives of rising prices uh, encourage more innovation, uh, better exploration, uh, and, and more efficient usage. Uh, we've never, as Julian Simon shows in The Ultimate Resource, we've never really run out of a, of a resource. Okay, thank you. We have the lady, the lady there, yeah, in the middle there. Uh, I have her as well, so she may go first and then come you. This is not a question, this is a comment. There is an, um, a category of cases about resources. Um, in countries where uh, governments oppress a section of their own people, they occupy, the, uh, their armed forces occupy that area and uh, transport even the sand and trees and uh, water to their um, privileged people. For example, in North Sri Lanka, right now, the army of occupation is taking, scooping up sand from the seashore and the sea is coming into the villages of the people. They don't have even a room, a land to stand on. Their trees are being cut down by the armed forces or the occupation army and transported to the south. 
uh, all their resources they they are driven out of the coastal areas and the coastal areas are sold to businessmen for tourism and tourists are enjoying the coastal areas but the people who have livelihoods in those areas are dumped in jungles so that is a sort of resources also you need to uh, think about thank you okay thank you uh, the the lady over there yep thank you um two quick questions uh, in your opinion state your name please my name is victoria i'm a freelancer hello um two quick questions um <coughs> when do you see the chinese leaving africa and in again in your opinion what can africans uh, both governmental and the people do to gain more from this collaboration okay so First of all, thank you very much. Um, the gentleman over there, are you looking for a job? Because I'm actually looking for somebody to do a deep dive into research. I'm actually just teasing you. Um, <laughs> so um, let, me, let me be clear, because you, you seem to think that uh, I am a, well, let me, let me explain myself. First of all, I am a free marketeer. Uh, and I know that's probably, uh, sort of heresy in, in places like LSE. Um, but I do believe in free markets. However, I'm also realistic. I live in the real world. There's not a single country, uh, rich or poor, on this planet that actually uh, abides by free market thinking. It's a very much a textbook co context uh, concept. And uh, I know I'm going to get shot by my best friend. And Kevin is here, so you can uh, confirm this. But my best friend hates it when I say this. But it's kind of like Harry Potter. It's a very interesting read to read free market economics, but in the real world, it doesn't exist. Um, I have a whole chapter in the book on, called Meddling in the Markets. We know that governments meddle in the markets. My, I am not saying that what the Chinese uh, is doing is going to uh, reduce the dead weight loss or is the most efficient thing that anybody could be doing. I think there are aspects of it that are absolutely amazing and are great. There are these aspects of uh, trade and, and uh, um, investment into places like Africa, where I think I said earlier, almost a billion people, less than 2% of world trade, where I think this type of statistics are, are completely unacceptable in a world that has globalized so rapidly. So there is a role for what China is doing. Um, however, it's really, really important for me that you understand that there is a difference between being a supporter of free markets um, in the pure sort of textbook sense and all, uh, but at the same time appreciating that in reality, governments can and do meddle in the food markets. They do meddle in the oil markets. They meddle in all of these commodity markets. And to that degree, what is China's role and how is that uh, playing out? So that was really what I was saying. I am not standing here and saying that this is the best system on the planet and we should just think that everybody should do what China's doing. I'm simply saying this is what they're doing and here are some benefits and here are some of the questions that people have asked. And I think it would be great if somebody actually wrote a book um, or an article that really critiqued China's um, approach in a more sensible way, i.e. focusing on what the potential dead, lot, uh, dead weight loss of such a strategy is, then wasting our time by sort of, uh, sort of old wives' tales and spreading stuff that is absolutely unsubstantiated, um, some of the things that we talked about, uh, talked about earlier. Um, the second part of answering your question, I think, comes to what this lady said a moment ago. Uh, let's just remind ourselves. I think we, we put too much emphasis 
on um, somebody else going to solve this problem. Ultimately, what uh, the lady was talking about boils down to what the role of government is. Um, government has an important role to play. I strongly believe that the role of government is threefold. Government has got to provide public goods, the things we all benefit from but we, none of us want to pay for ourselves, whether it's infrastructure or national security or education um, or health care. Health care, well, let's see what the Americans decide in the Supreme Court. Um, second, government's responsibility is to regulate, to punish illegal behavior, but also to provide a regulatory framework that works and functions efficiently. Uh, we know what's happened in the financial crisis when there's been weak regulation. It's really important that the government regulates appropriately. And third, what I view as quite one of the most important things, and again, what China and the emerging markets are doing phenomenally well, is government has to create policies that incentivize people to behave in a good or a positive way. It doesn't always work efficiently, but you want an environment where people are willing to work hard, people are willing to save money, people are willing to invest, so on and so forth. And I think, again, if you think about this, these three aspects of what the role of government is, um, it comes back to the lady's comment. Um, it is infuriating when governments behave outside of that, and I strongly believe it's another conversation, and I, I think I've already had this conversation here, um, that what we're experiencing now in terms of the financial crisis was exactly a consequence of governments stepping out of their narrow role. These three roles that if they did wonderfully, we'd all be happy, but they step out, they become quite arrogant. Oh, I can do more. I can become a portfolio manager and create policies that will encourage people to buy houses, even though I don't think they should have houses. That type of attitude, this type of behavior where they support armed forces to go and steal um, resources, all these type of actions fall outside the purview of um, these three uh, key roles of government, and I think that's when you get these, ba these bad outcomes. Um, the last question is, when is China going to be out of Africa, and what should Africans do? Uh, I, the short answer is I don't know. I think the, the longer answer is that they'll be in Africa as long as there's something for them to be in Africa for. Um, these are scarce, depleting, and finite resources that we're talking about. Um, it links into the second part of the question, what should African governments do? Well, I hope that these governments are not so dumb as to not appreciate that the Chinese will be gone um, once these commodities have run out. Um, and I really hope that they're spending a lot of effort, in fact I know some of them are, um, building sovereign wealth funds, saving some of that money, or putting it to good use in investment uh, instead of using it for consumption. I think there, there has been significant improvement in this space. Um, I know that the Norwegians are spending quite a bit of time um, going around to advising many governments, uh, not just in Africa, across the world, especially with what has happened commodity prices and encouraging these countries to actually uh, um, invest and save their money uh, more appropriately. Okay, a new round of uh, questions. We'll have the <coughs> gentleman down here and then gentleman all the way in the back. And then we'll have one more down here. Hi, Dan Bisa. Uh, my, my name's David Harris. I'm from London. I'm just at the front. Sorry, here. where are you? I'm at the oh, front. Oh, here you are. Okay, thank Hi. you. I'm sorry. <laughs> Hi. Uh, David Harris from London. Hi. Um, Dan Bisa, I was particularly interested in um, your comments on zero cost of capital. And that's in the context that I'm mesmerized by your every word. But um, <laughs> Thank you. you. You were saying, um, you know, firstly, that the, the Chinese system of providing these uh, integrated resources really works. And also that they have 
um, a, broader to, a broader utility function that's making a dent in poverty. And I just wonder, along with the other resources that we need, is there um, a change in thinking that's needed to, to uh, address the issues that we face in the world now? So perhaps the, the things that the gentleman referred to before, perhaps your, your analysis of, of market thinking that it's interesting, but actually it's not the way it works. Do you see a genesis of that thought amongst people at LSE or at Oxford or at Harvard or at those other institutions where perhaps those ideas can come from? Okay, thank you. Um, yeah, yes, him, and then we go to you. Hi there. Um, <clears throat> Shogi, I'm a master's student here at the LSE. I'm here. Hi. Um, so um, you, I hear you're quite positive uh, about Chinese investment in Africa. And of course, not everything is bad, but um, I'd like to, to hear your thoughts about how you envisage the, uh, the medium to short, the short to medium term uh, channels through which um, Chinese investment in Africa will actually benefit development and the diversification of, uh, of its economies there. Um, uh, building roads um, to extract resources in itself isn't going to bring development to Africa. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's probably good for certain uh, sectors of the economy. Um, to, uh, Chinese investment is probably good for certain sectors of the economy. Um, but how do you envisage the broader uh, impact uh, of these investments? Um, what are the linkages and, and how, how do you think Chinese investment will really benefit? Do you have other sectors in mind that you're, you're getting at? Well, I mean, the extractive industry has very little linkages to the rest of the economy. Uh, the majority of, African, uh, of the African population actually works in the, in the agricultural sector, for example. Uh, very little investment is, is being made in that sector. Um, sorry, which one? In the agricultural oh, yeah. sector. Okay, sorry. Mm -hmm. uh, Seventy 70% of the African population works in the African sector, uh, in the agricultural sector. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so all these, you know, I, I just don't, what, how do you, I mean, you, you're very positive about it, but concretely, how do you see this bringing development to Africa? Mm -hmm. I'm George. I did the China Masters at the LEC four years ago. And my question is about China's resource buying spree. Really? You, resource purchases around the world. What is your evidence that China is buying these resources at any price? And wouldn't it be fairer to say that the Chinese government is a rational agent that has a reservation price? Thanks. Mm -hmm. <coughs> okay. So um, I loved your first question, the first question, uh, only because I, I'm, and actually a few of my friends are here and um, I, people from my publisher, um, this is the, one of the questions I'm spending a lot of time thinking about. Um, the economic profession, economics profession has gotten absolute, absolutely insulted and torn down, um, probably largely justified um, um, in this sort of inability to forecast uh, the, the financial crisis, but more than that, the inability to form a consensus about what needs to be done um, now that we're in this space. Um, do I, your specific question was, do I see some uh, interesting new ideas popping up? Uh, the short answer is yes. I'm really tempted to tell you um, where they are, um, but if I do that, um, it might actually hurt my ability to write uh, something interesting next time. So I will tell you, um, I will tell you that uh, you should watch the space. But it's a very, very good question. Um, 
I was just thinking, I mean, there's so many different ways you could think about it. We've come from even just thinking about my own work, it's evolved quite significantly, at least to my mind. You had a dead aid, which was sort of, you had uh, developed markets sort of on top, emerging markets below, that's sort of a relationship. And then how the West was lost was sort of discussing them as peers and how the, the global imbalances and balances were going to work with China and the US leading that sort of relationship. Um, winner take all is really in a way about China. So the emerging markets now taking over from the developed economies in terms of strategy um, and approach with respect to commodities. Um, there are, I, I don't want to you know, give, you, give away too much, but there are, the, the question is what is the next area? Is it going to be one where we all work in an integrated fashion? Is it going to be one where the world is split off and we, have, we go back to our uh, own quarters and it's less globalized? There's so many different questions. I love that question. It is a question that I'm spending a lot of time focusing on. Um, and maybe, if you're nice to me afterwards, I might give you a few references. Um, second question was around extractive industries. Uh, what is the role of extractive industries? So first of all, um, the notion that extractive industries are sort of, uh, sort of uh, siloed off from the rest of the economy is not true, right? I mean, Dutch disease, consequences of Dutch disease permeate the whole economy. It's not just about, um, uh, about what the impact of the Dutch disease, for those who, who might not know, is this idea that if you have, let's suppose, high commodity prices, you get all these dollars into a small, a small country, let's say it's got shillings, and the, the shilling, because there's so many more dollars in the economy, the shilling becomes strong, and that kills off your export sector. Um, but it can also have significant consequences of the price of goods um, in the non-tradable sector as well. So it's not true that commodity um, the, the, is a very narrow impact on the economy, and I don't think it's just infrastructure. There is job creation um, very clearly, and a number of people, Deborah Brotigam has written extensively on job creation emanating in, broad, uh, in the broader sectors in Africa, in particular around uh, China's involvement. Um, the last thing I would say is that uh, China's relationship in Africa, but also in other regions is actually already changing. Uh, they bought, Chinese have bought 20% in one of Africa's largest pan-African banks. Um, as we sit here, I mean, I think this is one of the things that a lot of people don't know, around 85% of the stocks that trade in Africa are non-commodity stocks. They're banking, they're telecommunications, the retail. So the Chinese are very much participating in that, and so it is a broader approach, and I do think actually it's very beneficial um, in terms of foreign direct investment. It's, we need that foreign direct investment. Um, there is no other path, shorter path, or quick route to uh, economic success. No country in the history of the world has ever achieved economic growth or put a dent in poverty by relying on aid. This is the path to economic success, foreign direct investment. It's not a big mystery. We've got lots of evidence in the past um, and lots of counterfactuals of countries that have not relied on trade and foreign direct investment that have failed considerably. So I'm pretty optimistic about what the Chinese are doing. I do once again emphasize it does need to be managed. It needs to be aggressively managed by policymakers. And once again, it's very important for us to hold our governments accountable so that the right thing is being done. Um, has China got a reservation price? That's a very good question. Uh, have they got a reservation price? Well, the short answer is you would imagine that they would, um, but the, the point of, of it is it's very hard for us to know what that reservation price is. Uh, I think that as they have become the key buyer of resources, um, they, they, people have become pretty clear to many different people that they are willing to pay higher prices than most, and so you can imagine that the valuation of resource uh, assets has increased uh, over time. 
I, I don't think I can find it really quickly, but I've got a great quote in here um, from one of the South Korean, do you know what page that is by any chance? A South Korean minister, I'll tell you what he said, but um, it's, it's in the book, where he basically has said to um, corporations, this is a, one of the ministers in, in South Korea, he's actually told uh, South Korean companies not to bother going to compete against the Chinese, if they know that the Chinese are in there um, competing. And, and this goes back to some of the questions we were talking about, about how does capitalism then work? How do you have a globally uh, sort of transparent uh, commodity price um, when we know that there, some of the actors are effectively um, self-selecting themselves out of the race because they think that there's going to be a higher bidder? But there is a, a quote in the book, um, and it, I talk a lot about this whole question of what China's, uh, what, how willing are they to pay higher prices? I think one of the risks is that you can, if you play out the story, um, sort of the logical extension, you could argue that as more and more competitors, ostensible competitors say, gosh, there's no point in going against the Chinese, they'll always pay higher, you could end up with a situation where the prices collapse and China's able to buy prices at a lower, uh, a lower, uh, lower level. So I do talk about that extensively. I don't think I can tell you that China's reservation, sorry? 130, okay, let me, if you don't mind, I'll just read no, it very absolutely. quickly. Uh, 130. Okay, so, <coughs> excuse me. Um, okay, I'll just start from, it's just a couple sentences. Um, along similar lines of thinking, a monopsonist buyer, in this case China, is able to raise its bid price, the price it is willing to pay for assets, justified by the broad benefits and zero capital costs that we talked about already, to such high levels that others are priced out of the market. Well aware of this tendency, um, the president of the Korea National Oil Corporation, Kang Yong Won, in 2010 sent an unequivocal message to investment bankers pitching acquisition targets to his state-owned company. Be mindful of competition from China and steer clear of the bigger, better capitalized Chinese companies. In other words, don't propose projects that could lead to a bidding war with China because you'll always lose. So I do think that there are longer-term consequences that we, could, we should be thinking about. Um, but I think for now, they've got very deep pockets, and I think they'll buy much, most of stuff. Okay. We'll collect another three questions, and I'm going to squeeze in a small one of my own. Uh, so we'll have the lady here, uh, the lady there, and you have been up for a while. Then we, uh, be, and then um, we'll finish. Okay, thank you. Hi, my name's Moaluan. I'm a sixth form student from Coventry. Um, I want to ask this question because I seem to pick up in your speech some kind of undertones of frustration with um, African governments. Um, it seems to Surely be... not. <laughs> <laughs> um, it seems to be that the leading developed nations want to control interests, uh, who invests in Africa and how much they invest almost as if Africa itself were a commodity to be owned and controlled. Do you think we have brought this naughty, childlike presentation on ourselves, and can we ever be taken seriously as economies on the global market? Okay. Hi, um, I'm Christina, and I'm a student at Alessi. Where are you? I'm just over here. Oh, there you are. Thank okay. you very much for your talk. Um, I just wanted to ask, there's quite a lot of talk about um, Chinese banking needing reform 
And I just wanted to ask, uh, do you think that uh, zero-cost capital can still happen without reform? Or do you think that um, zero-cost capital would just be a, a price that they will have to pay to, and ignore um, banking reforms in order to provide that free um, capital? Okay, and then the gentleman here in the middle with the classes. Hello, I'm Mark. I'm a sixth former from Hampshire. Uh, you say the Chinese have no interest in neocolonialism there. They're only interested in business. But surely the great European empires started in the same way with the East India Company and so on. Okay. <laughs> Done, Bisa. Uh, Okay. Finally, a much more innocuous uh, question. Oh. <laughs> your, your, your subtitle says, China's race for resources and what it means for us. Um, your, your talk mainly concentrated on China's race for resources. Could you tell us a little bit you know, what it means for us? And who is us? Is it the Western world? Is it all the non-Chinese? Or who is it? <laughs> and you have a good five, six, seven minutes. Oh, great. Okay, I'll just take my time. No. Um, okay, so uh, frustration. Can African country governments be taken seriously? By the way, the sixth form. Are there many more sixth formers in here? I'm really impressed by these questions. I was just slagging you guys off yesterday in a, on a BBC <laughs> about how the poor education standards in the, in the UK. They, we're just talking about this. So those are pretty good questions. Yeah, not of these uh, prospective LSE applicants. <laughs> 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 no, um, well done. Good questions. Um, so, can Africa be taken seriously? I should hope so, because otherwise I'm really wasting my life. I'm going around trying to change, um, trying to change perception, trying to change, get the dialogue going about not just Africa but global economics. Um, I do think that there's a real opportunity for that to change considerably. I think we will get rid of the dross in an environment that we're in right now where there is no more aid money coming. You know, who's going to go to Italy or to Spain now and say, oh, by the way, I've got an aid project? Um, it's just not going to happen. Um, the United States is borrowing from China, um, what, to give aid to Africa? And this is illogical type of thing that is not going to be tolerated anymore. I think we saw a snippet of it, as I said earlier, with regards to Rio. We've seen a bit of a snippet of that with the fact that it was, it's been in the emerging markets, China, India, Brazil, Russia, that stood up and have written checks to bail out Europe. So I think that you know, when these type of pressures occur and the system that has bolstered or has uh, supported uh, sort of ineffective and even useless policymakers in power, that system is crumbling. And I think, therefore, we will have um, better quality policymakers um, who can actually be taken seriously. And, you know, it's just, it's, I, think, I think it's happening. I, think, I do think it's happening. Um, Chinese banking reform and zero cost of capital. So, you know, I think if, if we had, if there's one thing that I struggle with, and this comes back to this gentleman's question here in the front, um, I have to continually force myself not to be bound by the strictures of economics and Western approaches to, uh, to finance and economics. I spent pretty much a big chunk of my life going to do a doctorate, going to do economics, and all this stuff. But I think when we think about China and when we think about the emerging markets in general, uh, one of the biggest dis disservices or disadvantages that we place on ourselves is to think about what they are doing vis-a-vis -vis 
uh, our narrow perspective of, uh, of development or, or financial economics, which has had a good run. It's had over 300 years. We've seen success. It's worked. You know, it's had its ups and downs. The financial crisis is an example. But it's, it's, it's a long-winded way of saying, um, in a world where uh, we're talking about banking reform and zero cost of capital, if you're looking at it from a Western lens, I would say the two cannot commune. They cannot work together. It, there would be something we'd have to give. In a world um, where the Chinese government is a state capitalist, it owns 30, basically the top 30 companies in China are state-owned. Um, it owns many of the banks. It controls the lending. Uh, and remember that uh, there's a lot of financial deepening that yet has to happen. A lot of Chinese people don't have bank accounts. They don't have access to credit cards and so on. I don't really get excited when I hear China's cut by 25 basis points. Everybody's, oh, 25 basis points. Yeah, but you know, in, in Western economies, that sort of an action permeates because people got mortgages, they got bank accounts, they got credit cards. In China, a large proportion of the population doesn't have access to those things, and so a 25 basis point cut doesn't really mean much. So I think we, what I'm trying to say is that it's very difficult to answer that question because we're talking about a model that does not have a, uh, a sort of a precedent in, in, in our understanding of how economics works. There are many other examples of this. One of the things that I'm fascinated by, just to give you a teaser um, with the earlier question, is the rule of law. If you speak to economists, and there's been lots of work done on this, the rule of law is absolutely a pre prerequisite for economic growth. Well, most people would say China does not have the rule of law. Then how is it possible that in the next 10 years, China is going to become the largest economy in the world? <laughs> without having a rule of law. And so it's forcing people like me to say, wait a second, so what, what sort of things have we been assuming that perhaps are wrong or we, because we haven't seen it before? So I, I, that was, I mean, I don't know if it's a long-winded way of saying, in, the, in our view of the world, the two can't coexist. Uh, in the Chinese view of the world, we, they have other tools that they are willing to pull, um, levers that they're willing to pull that we cannot understand or appreciate because we are bound by these, by these narrow structures. Um, Neocolonialism. So <coughs> if you go back to history, uh, and I'm sure you have, you will know that the first people to set foot um, into Africa, into Asia, uh, and even South America, were actually not the politicians with this idea, grand idea of politics uh, or of uh, neocolonialism. That came after the missionaries, and it came after uh, many business people. So the, the sort of uh, purpose of the uh, foray into these emerging markets was a very different one. Uh, the Chinese have basically gone for business and it's supported by the government. I don't believe it's a political agenda. Um, and I think that you picked East, uh, East India. I mean, there are many other examples of this. But those, the, the real political infrastructure that is required for the building administration, sending people out, which is what um, Britain did uh, during the uh, colonial period, sending people out to be representatives of the British government um, on the ground, building civil service, civil service building um, policies or replicating policies in these, in these uh, different economies is, is simply not what the Chinese are doing. The Chinese, as I said earlier, are being actually criticized for not caring enough about the political infrastructure. Um, in many of these economies. So I think there's a very, very clear difference. Um, you don't have Chinese missionaries going across Africa or South America to preach um, a particular religion. You don't have a sort of individual uh, business uh, culture. Um, you have it much more based on government intervention, and it is very purely 
um, based on on economics and not with any uh, economic without any political infrastructure behind it. Um, last question: uh, What does this mean for the world? So, sorry. Oh, okay. Oh no. No, no. no. Oh, sorry. Um, <laughs> what does it mean for the world? Well, I think we will see more wars um, on the current path. We will see more uh, clashes. I very much believe what the United States report is saying. I think a lot of those wars will be water-based. Um, I do think commodity prices will go higher, and therefore I, will, I do believe we will see uh, a significant uh, deterioration of, of our living standards. Um, your question of who is us, it's all of us. Um, we, it's not $100 barrel of oil is something that we all see and we all are impacted by. It's not like it's only for Americans and the rest of us get to pay $50 a barrel. That's not how it works. So um, that we really are in a sort of disruptive period with regards to where economics will take us. And this is why I wrote this book, because I fundamentally think that governments need to be much more uh, active and much more um, proactive in terms of dealing with the commodity headwinds. That it, it's pretty clear that they are on their way. So thank okay. you very much. So thank you very much. Um, we, um We have to draw this to a close now. I'm sure we could uh, continue for at least another hour with uh, uh, questions. Uh, let me remind you that the book is outside for sale and that Misa will be available here to sign the book. And uh, let me say that it was, you didn't like my British understatement of interesting, a really fascinating <laughs> talk. No, I, truly, I was very impressed by the, the way you delivered a very wide-ranging lecture and really engaged with the question asker. So please uh, let uh, me ask you to join me again. And thank you, our speaker. Very well done. Very well done. You're so spot on.